0: This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. We got a very, very interesting replay. Uh, Yeah. That's an in-law suite.
1: Correct. Which relates
0: to the fact that you've talked to Generations United a number of times and more and more people are doing this sort of thing uh, where multi-generational families are building these things so they can house each other.
1: Yeah. All the additions that I've been over the past three years have been exactly this, multi-generational families. All of them? Yep. Every one of them. Yeah. From my house to, and I have three planned for the end of this year in 2024, Exactly what we're going to be doing is people are moving back in, whether it's going to be the parents moving back in or the kids moving back in with the parents. So it's a lot of moving parts with this, but it seems like a better buy for a lot of people because when you think about, hey, if I'm going to sell the house, well, if you sell the house, you're going to pay your closing costs, you're going to pay your realtor fee, you're going to pay a lot of costs that are just going to get thrown away. Mm-hmm. So why not take a good portion of that money and put it into building something that's going to be worthwhile for you and your family? And that's what we've done here. We have Joanne on the phone. We were, I spoke to her son over a year ago. And we started talking about building an addition, get mom moved in. It's now started. We have just begun. But it's it's kind of a neat project because it's trying to get the idea of what homeowners want to do on their house and trying to find the best budget. So over the past four or five months, and we've been talking with Joanne and Chuck, who's her son, talking about some of the best ideas, what the best budget the best ideas they can put on a house that's going to make sense and worthwhile. So Joanne, thanks for coming on your I valuable can home podcast. And get talking an
0: ROI on it too. If you ever sell it. Yeah.
1: Well, that's what her son, that's what she's going to say. Her yeah. son keeps saying that. Yeah. So Joanne, what, what does your son always say to you? Oh, think for every resell. That's it. It's just, when you really do think about it, everything's a luxury on a house. When you think about it, when you say, Hey, a kitchen, hey, I'm going to do a kitchen. I'm going to spend a hundred thousand dollars. But when you really think about it, the $100,000, you're not getting that back when you sell the house. I mean, you can maybe get 25000 back, but you're going to get a quicker... Well,
0: it all depends when you sell, too. The kitchen may be beat up. The new kitchen may be beat up if it's like 15 years old,
1: right? Right, but yeah. some people are looking at that. They're going to bid a little bit less, say 25000 less, because they know they're going to be putting a kitchen on and doing something they want. But if you do it, it's going to cost you about a $100,000. See, people don't understand how much kitchens cost. I actually showed... Uh, Joanne, when I was there yesterday, I said, well, look, here's one of the next jobs we're going to be doing. And I showed her the price of the cabinets that I got from my supplier. And it was just an invoice that the homeowner paid for the cabinets. And Joanne, what, what was the cost on that I showed you? Over 92000 U.S. US dollars? U.S. dollars just for cabinets. That's not the countertops. That's not the appliances, the flooring, and all the stuff that I got to do, the labor. That was just to buy the cabinets for everything.
0: Joanne, I would just put the cabinets in and forget everything else.
1: (laughs) That's right. Can you do it yourself? Have you put the crown molding on? Oh, God. But what we're going to talk about on this episode is... Things that we discussed over the past five months to get to the point that we're here now, trying to find a budget. What were we talking about? What were some of the design ideas? So the first setup when I got the plans, Did
0: you, uh, you had an architect, yeah, Matt your, had Matt design them yeah, okay. up. Yeah.
1: But Matt had designed doing a bathroom in an area where we had to get into a crawl space, which Joy, I think, it was about two feet depth from the. Yeah, uh, I think Chucky said it's three feet. It's tight. It's small. Yeah, so
0: you don't want to stand up in there.
1: <laughs> no, you'll be smacking your head. So my, my mason said, well, how, how am I getting this? I'm like, I, I really don't know. I mean, we have to cut the whole floor joist out. We have to cut everything out. And you got to dig by hand. You got to literally dig these by hand in a little area. So I said, why don't we try something like this? So we sat back down, which I know Matt always knows he hates when I always get a phone call or give him a phone call and say, hey, we got to redo some of your designs. I, I think this would work better because it's a cost factor. Like I don't mind spending their money, but I'm not going to waste their money. So we came up with an idea that's going to have a better laundry room, a much more user-friendly bathroom, better living space, better bedroom, and probably about 10%. one one bedroom?
0: It's going to be one bedroom.
1: The addition is 16 by 30. So with that size, we are trying to consolidate putting a bedroom, bathroom, walkway, and a little sitting area. And what's
0: what's the style uh, or genre of the the main house?
1: Ranch. Ranch house. Just a ranch house.
0: So it's a ranch
1: addition. Built in probably what the 50s? 50s. I think okay. in that area.
0: All right. Yeah, I think it was around the 50s. Okay.
1: So, what were some of the points that when we were talking with the architect that you wanted for your addition? Well, I wanted a sliding door and I wanted a bathroom that I could get into and, you know, without any problems. And according to my son, he wants it so that he can just—if I need a wheelchair, he can just push me in. <coughs> makes sense. That though. makes a lot of sense.
0: Is it, are you building this to be ADA compliant?
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes and so. no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because what we have to do is between like the the doors, the entry doors, all the doors at your house have to be the thirty-eight because you need a thirty-six-inch opening. Now they got a little if relaxed you have on the wheelchair, right? Right. If you have a wheelchair, right, exactly. Yeah. But what we're doing, so how we're doing this is that this is. First day on the job, the footings were already dug. We're about ready to pour and we got to the inspection. But Dave and I, the first day we got out there was not for us to do work. It's just to get in our mind from the elevation of the foundation, which we have to do, putting the points that we need to to make sure that from that foundation till the top of this peak of the addition, everything we're doing is done correctly. Because if it starts wrong at the elevation of the foundation, you got a problem. We got a big problem. Yeah. So we had to start ripping down siding, get everything set up, because when the footing is poured, that elevation is where the block's going to be to where I need it to set for that elevation. Now, this floor has 2 by 10 joists and some flooring, and then Chuck, the son, had put flooring down. And the big thing he wanted was make sure that flooring going into the main part of the house is flows smooth straight into the addition. So what we did, since we're doing a slab on grade, we had to bring that slab up, that 12 inch extra inches, to match that foundation to the framing of the house, so it's just smooth. So as we go into the bathroom, what we're doing is something a little bit different. We're actually going to drop in the slab a two and a half inch drop in the shower area, and then we're going to put a vinyl pan over across that whole area.
0: that's going to be baked into the slab.
1: Correct. Right. Okay. And then the rubber, the panning, which is the uh, rubber that we're going to be putting down, is going to be lower in that area, and then it's going to rise back up. But what the way the tile is going to be built is that when the you go up the threshold, that whole bathroom is just wide open. It's one floor. No curbs, no anything, no half walls. It's just open. So
0: in in essence, it is somewhat ADA-compliant. ADA-compliant, correct.
1: Because what we're trying to do is minimize the curbs. Now, the curb's a lot easier. It's a lot cheaper. But this was a better way to do it because the cost wasn't much because we're rebuilding from nothing. If you have to retrofit a framing or an addition or something you need to do, it's going to cost more labor and time to do it. Sure. Since we're starting from scratch, it's going to be pretty easy. Mm -hmm. So we have everything set up. And then from there, it's just putting a wet bed down.
0: You're putting a conventional tub in there or what?
1: No tub, just a shower. Just a shower. Open shower.
0: So it's not like a walk-in tub or something like that.
1: So now that we have the bathroom all set up, we're going to be laying the slab, but this is what we need. Now, here's the tricky part of the job. Number one, I'm fighting the rain. Which we've been in for the past two days. Uh, Number two. It's going
0: to go right into next week.
1: And it's going to to take us into next week. But I also have to get the plumbing under that slab. And I've got to get the mechanical, which is the baseboard heat that's got to be set under that slab. And then once it's done, then then I bring the inspector back out to look at the plumbing, look at the mechanical, and then do a pre-slab inspection to make sure the insulation is up against the back part of that. As
0: the inspector, if if you're building this for someone who could be incapacitated at a future date, okay, Does he inspect for ADA compliance as well or no?
1: No, because we didn't apply for the ADA compliant. Okay. Uh, It's just a genre of just building an addition for the house. Mm -hmm. Now, if somebody is looking for ADA compliant and they see this, it's going to be a lot easier to sell because this is what they're looking for. Mm
2: -hmm. There's going
1: to be no curbs inside the shower. But really what it is, when people are thinking, well, is it going to spill out? I'm like, well, no, it's not set up that way. Is The tiles then has got to be built up because it's going to be built over the panning. Well, the panning is going to be at one elevation, and then where you're actually standing in the shower, the panning drops. Now, those tile showers that we do are designed to leak. But where the tile is going to be set up, that majority of that water, as you get to the shower where she's going to be standing for the shower, is going to slope towards the drain, which is going to be in the corner. Now, that corner is going to be on two walls where the walls have the rubber that's going up at 12 inches. So if water does trap into that area, it's going to funnel to the drain. Anything that gets below it's it is
0: going to stay contained. Yeah. Contained
1: into that area. Mm-hmm. So I told her, as long as she doesn't hit the, the handheld and start spraying it everywhere with the vanity out the door, you're going to be fine. But that's what it's designed for. It's this specific for that ADA compliant because it's what they want it. Gotcha. So that's okay. the whole thing, right, Joanne? We always talk about it's what you want, not what I, what we want to give you. It's what you want we build, Correct. Yes. <laughs> so when did you decide to put the disco ball in? Uh, when you brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> Are we putting one or two in? <laughs> I think we just do with the two. So the, the, the fun part was that uh, with her and I designing it, Chuck was away for a little bit of time. And we've got to do some designing without Chuck because he was away. And I said, well, look, it's your place. You tell me what you want and we'll build it. And I said, why don't we bring some disco balls in because it's going to be a higher ceiling. So it's going to be worthwhile. So we ha- we were having some fun. And then we told Chuck when he got back, we're, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. He said, w- what are you guys doing? You're not doing that my house. Because it's, it's actually his house. It's,
0: it's his house, right?
1: Correct. And uh, yeah, mom's moving in with him. But it's building to what homeowners want. As long as I know what you want, we can build to it. And it's just trying to get it understanding. Because sometimes homeowners, when they actually look at a set of plans, it doesn't look on paper scale, where people think they can move some things around, but if you really move things around, it doesn't work the best. Right. So me being there and being on site doing the work, which she does have a picture of me taking down siding today. I saw that she took that picture uh, with me doing the work. It makes it a lot easier to communicate what she wants to make sure that we do what they want. Right. That's the whole act. Right. I, I, when you're doing an addition like this, If a contractor works with you, if not, they say, these are the plans. If you don't sign off on them, I'm not changing it. Well, that's not really a a great way to go for homeowners. So now, Joanne, let's get back to some of the other designs. Like what were your needs that you had to have in this edition? Well, like I said, I I wanted the the bathroom as far as I, I don't like tubs. So that's why I wanted just the shower. And I want the bedroom with some nice windows and I need some light in my living area and then the sliding door to go out. And then we did add, end up turning around and putting in, uh, moving the laundry room back there as well. Well, we're having a larger laundry room. It's all self-contained. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, by having that. See, what Ron, a lot of people don't think is that when you have a laundry room and it's really tight, it's tough folding yeah. laundry. It's tough doing a lot of things. You need a little bit of space in the laundry sure. room. Absolutely. And the way it was set up prior was it was not going to work. It was just too tight. It was going to be put in a hallway where you're standing basically in a hallway trying to fold something. It's almost impossible. So I wanted to make a better space, idea of space for user-friendly space for the homeowner. And having a bigger shower, bigger laundry room, and it really didn't lose any space. Now, like closets, I'll give you an example, like the closets. Well, this room we're taking out, which is the bedroom she's living in now, we took that space and then moved that closet back into her bedroom from the new part of the addition to give her a better living quarters where her bed is. So we didn't really lose anything. We actually gained more storage, better closets, a lo- larger laundry room, and a bigger shower, all in the same confinements.
0: Okay. Is there, did you mention a kitchen in there?
1: That was not going to be a kitchen. No.
0: Ki- do you have a microwave, microwave area or anything like that?
1: Where I want the refrigerator, I'm putting like a some kind of a shelving thing, and I probably will put a microwave in there so that I can heat up my coffee when it gets cold.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It <laughs> would be convenient for you instead of going to the main house, you know? Yeah,
1: her son does all the cooking. So.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, but you never know. I mean, you know, you want you want a bowl of soup or something like that, you just throw it in the microwave and you don't have to bother
1: anybody. Right. And what's nice about it, the, the door, entry door into that bedroom, that's thing. So they, I mean, there's going to be still two doors to get through, but they still wanted that her part, his part, but having still the option to get through without a problem. Right. So that's right. why we designed it in a way that I just, I just thought it'd be better and cost-effective and better uh, way to budget the money because when people look at an addition they don't look at the whole thing because then you got tile that we got to put in from the other manufacturer we have to buy uh, plumbing supplies which was a fun time doing that uh buying all the plumbing supplies when she uh, she met with kathy and designed everything and and then i know she's going to say well kathy just showed me things well she, kathy showed her all the ferrari the products and then when she got the price she's calling me going uh-oh we got a little problem with the price so i said what'd you buy like omega she's like well, well yeah yeah i really liked it but that's buying the Ferrari, so we had to back her down and get her back into the like the Chevy in the uh, area, the Yukon area, so it was a little bit more oh, So he didn't
0: go for the $90,000 cabinets, right?
1: <laughs> now, we're going to be doing that next year. Her and I are going to be doing it, but to try to get it approved through her son's going to probably be a little difficult. But, uh, Joanne, what we're going to do is, uh, as this job goes on, I'd like to have you on and get your thoughts of how you're living through this. How's it working with us? Because this is good information for our listeners that are going to be getting an in-law suite or a multi-generational family edition put on. Some of the things that you can advise them on what to do to make sure that it makes their job go easier with their contract sure, across the nation.
0: absolutely, absolutely. And there's more and more of this happening now, so it's valuable information for people, for our listeners, yeah, absolutely.
1: But like I said, once the slab's done, we'll start the framing for this project and uh, we're gonna get you back on in a couple of weeks.
0: That would be fine. Kev, our horror story for today is something that's near and dear to your heart. Measuring windows properly, and these weren't <laughs> right, right, caused yeah. all sorts of problems.
1: I'm sure going to be getting a call from this contractor. It's a local guy, and they just had the work done, just probably within a six month period. Well, they called me up to do an addition and a kitchen. Many people referred us to him, and I said, well, "Listen, I'll go out there and we'll meet up with you." And uh, he said, "Listen." Uh, they told a lot of good things about you. Then they, I know you have a show and you did all these awards and magazine covers. I, 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 we should have got you to install the windows. I said, okay, well, look, let me come out and we'll, we'll discuss it. So as soon as I get there, you, <laughs> you could see there was a, a little bit of an issue. So as I met him, we walked around back first, right? Cause I saw the windows in the front were different. Let we try to explain about how this works out. So as I was talking to the gentleman, he said, hey, let's go in the patio door and we'll, we'll go speak in the kitchen. We'll go show you the kitchen first and then we'll work our way back out. So as I tried opening the door, boy, it felt like that door was 2,000 pounds because the sill, when they put it in, is so crowned and bowed that the door has got to go up and over, which then rubs up to the top of the, the header <laughs> so the door doesn't slide very well. Sounds like a very, very well-planned job. <sighs> well, that that's when really he parted it. Then I said, well, why would they put the leave the 2 by 4 on the bottom of this door when you could just bring it down to the concrete and you don't have this big step to go over to walk yeah, out right, the patio that, door to make a lot of sense well here's why they left it on there because the door itself was a smaller door so there's two types of doors height-wise.
0: so they measured it well
1: yes okay. yeah okay so like give an example like if you get an Anderson door their Anderson door stock is six foot five high which is like six seven six eight and then if you get it, like a six eight door let's say like a Marvin door, uh, that door is stock at 6'10 So there's a couple different sizes. Being in the business long enough and knowing what manufacturers to work with, you've got to know that height size. So they ordered the smaller door but had to replace it with a the bigger door that was in there. So that bigger space, they wanted to use trim to cover so they do not have to do any painting around where the old trim was from the old door. So what they did is they put a 2 by 4 in the bottom of this patio door to raise it up so they didn't have to paint. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> i said wait a minute so it takes two minutes to spackle that maybe you got a feather in some paint might take about an hour and a half you've got to walk over this door the threshold's about four and a half inches high to get so over somebody's
0: obviously going to trip over. oh this yeah they've area. been
1: tripping on it for the last six months oh. so we get into the kitchen i said listen i'm not here to bash the contractor but um, i would have them rip this out and put it down to the floor because this you're walking out and you're going to be tripping over it and you're already having problems the with it
0: the wrong size.
1: Well, yeah, but what you could do is just pack it down and just put some spackle and put it around the top of the door with a header piece where that old trim line was. Lightly sand it and just repaint around it. The room was painted maybe about two years ago, so you can just feather it back in or paint the whole wall. Mm-hmm. By doing it that way, you're you're done. You never need to do it again because this door that they had.
0: If somebody's going to get hurt on this thing.
1: Four and a half inches. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a, basically it's a step. But here's the nice part. When you put a 2 by 4 down, you probably want to prep the opening below that because what they said on heavy rain, the water comes under the door because it's a 2 by 4 that's just sitting down. The, she said they nailed it to the concrete. I said, all right, but what did they do to prep it so water and air doesn't come nothing. in? She's like, well, nothing. nothing. They just painted it. So it's painted on the inside, and they put some capping on the outside, but water still comes in. So we're in the kitchen now. We're talking about a few other things. And I said, well, listen, I I know you're an expert. Can you tell me what they did wrong here? So I said, are you talking about the front windows? And I said, I don't need to go any further. They were mismeasured. So as we got to the front and I said, I'll explain why. We opened the plantation shutters and then the shutters, they had the window. Now it's the existing opening. So for our listeners, if you have a windowsill and then you have drywall on the wall and the drywall turns into the window, they put a replacement window in and they just put it to the drywall. But the problem is it was measured about four inches short. And what they did is they built the, from the sill up four inches, put a piece of colonial base molding trim, you know, the base molding that was predominantly used in the eighties, nineties, mm-hmm. put that on over top of the one by four. So you have this big white bottom, but on the outside, it's a piece of metal. That's about five inches at the bottom. And then about two inches around the rest of the way. And I said, it's pretty obvious that they measured the windows wrong. It's a replacement window made to the custom quarter inch. This is measured wrong. So they're complaining about it. Now the contractor's like, well, that's the correct size. And I said, well, listen, if you want, I'll come back out here, I'll meet with the guy. And he was going to be very upset with me, but I don't really care. I said, this is a bad job and he really shouldn't be. And he got his money too. That's the worst part. Did you meet with the guy? I, I didn't meet with the contractor, but I'm yeah. sure I'm going to be getting a phone call from saying, why are you why are you bashing? I'm not bashing anybody. It's Look, if you for our listeners, if you hire a company, I don't care if they're a $20 million or $20 billion company, you put in a window inside an existing opening and it's four and a half inches short.
0: You did something wrong.
1: You mismeasured right. it. It's made to the custom quarter inch on yeah. any vinyl window. So when people order a vinyl window, that's what you're getting. Yeah, quarter
0: inch you can do with shims, right? Perfect, exactly.
1: Because the window frame might be a little bit off. Right. So I showed her the video that you and I did for the Provia video. I told him about our sponsor, and we talked about it. It was the Sugar Shack on YouTube. Provia by the Your Value. you don't at show
0: home. this to the contractor.
1: <laughs> she goes, "Well, they, they, no, no, they, they didn't do any of that." I'm like, well, "Why no?" I said, "Because if you look at the corners of your drywall, see this browning staining that you have coming in here? This brown stain is called water. It's penetrating water. in water." Mm-hmm. Oh boy! So I said, well, well, all they did was four screws and caulk. So now we have two new listeners of the show. Uh, the homeowners are going to be listening, but they watch the video and they're like, "What can we do?" I'm like, well, "You can't do anything. You got to rip out the window and rip redo it out, everything. Do it over again." Yeah. So I said, unless you can get a stretcher on a window and stretch it. So, mm-hmm. guy, by the way, but just laughing at it the it's whole time. It's
0: unfortunate people have to go through this stuff. You know what I mean?
1: Well, you know, people always talk about getting a job from somebody, and they're saying, "Well, this company." I see their signs everywhere they advertise. Does that mean they're good? Listen, I'm not here to bash anybody, but I've been in this business for 34 years. I'm seeing what's going on out here. These people ought to be ashamed of themselves taking the homeowner's money on what you installed. And she was trying to communicate, she couldn't communicate with them. They didn't speak English. So she's trying to call then the office where this company was, and they couldn't get anybody on the phone. And the guy, so here's the best part. She said, this is the one thing when I was leaving. She said, well, this is this one of the worst parts that I felt of the job. And I said, well, what happened? She's like, well, they left the outside. They didn't cap anything. And of course, they didn't do any interior work. They're trying to get the outside because it was done in the wintertime. So they got a lot of the stuff done, but they didn't cap the window. But they wanted to the insulate. So they came back at around six o'clock at night in the middle of the night because it, it, it was dark because very little daylight in December. And what they did was the guy just walked in the door, didn't even knock because they left it around three o'clock when it got dark, but... At six o'clock, she's up in her bathroom, unchanged, and she's getting changed. And uh, guy just walked in and started insulating, scared the heck out of her. She said, "I said, did did he knock?" He's like, "I was the only one home. I didn't know somebody's just going to walk in my house." But this is what you go through. But if there's again, there's no quality control. This is what you're going to run into. So I said, "Well, are you complaining about it because you hire the guy?" That's the thing. I said, "If you go to court, what they're going to tell you, you hire the guy, so you have to deal with it." I hate to say, it, but it's how much
0: was the total job? Do you know,
1: seventeen thousand dollars.
0: Oh my word!
1: So they're going to be and not all the windows are mismeasured wrong. I said you can't tell how from could the...
0: you do, how could you do that? I mean, if you know, if you do some of them right, why would you do some of them wrong? I mean,
1: I I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I just don't know. But some of the windows you it's can a see mystery. capping around them looks normal, two and a half inches all mm-hmm. the way around. But the one at the bottom on this one was four and a half inches. It was a big cap. It's huge. So I said this is a problem. I said I would try to call them back and. If you want to meet you out here, it's not too hard to All figure right, Charlie,
0: out. So it's a seventeen thousand dollars job. but It's not a total write off.
1: No, no. I, there's probably about one, two, three, four, five windows and a double that need to be reordered and redone. And then I would tell them rip out the patio door, which is fine. You can take it out, set it aside, take the two by four off.
0: So it's a it's a six seventy five hundred dollars fix.
1: Correct. Okay. But they should be doing. It. If you're a contractor servicing the public, shouldn't you do the right job from the beginning? And if you don't have the guys in place to do it, why are you selling as a contractor? Well, if
0: you take pride in your work, you're going to want to have to uh, want to do this uh, over again. I,
1: I, I, yeah. Well, I, I if I knew I what mean, I good mentioned. or
0: bad, people are going to talk about it going forward. If you think think you're going to get some referrals out of measuring windows wrong, it's not going to happen.
1: No. Now, but what was nice about the development that she was in, I said, yeah. I said, this was the first Marvin job done uh, in the country. That's when I did back in 1992, and I did this. And I'm pointing to all the, the people that I've worked over the past 30 years in that development. She's like, I know those people. I'm like, well, ask them about it. And If you want us to do the job, why don't you go to them, and say, was he clean, did he show up every day? And this is going back 30 years ago. So I said, ask him, see how it is, because I'm still in business after 30 years. This mm-hmm. company has only been in business for three years. I checked it with uh, Pennsylvania, and you can just see on their licensing and they've been in business for three years. Maybe
0: by their fourth year, they'll learn how to measure for windows
1: correctly. I think it takes about 10 years oh, yeah, to yeah, measure yeah. a window. Watch. Take the tape measure, length, uh, width, you measure it, maybe shrink it a quarter inch if you need it. Some
0: of this stuff is really hard to believe, you know? Well,
1: that's it's why really hard I, to believe. I'll be putting the pictures on social media so you can see it. A lot of people are like, how do you, are you really seeing the stuff? I'm like, well, here are the pictures. Mm-hmm. The one we did with the rotted window, I said, well, they, there's the rotted window. And yeah, they just covered it up with tape, so... Uh, these are the things that it's hard to believe, but contractors today, they think they're contractors. They should stay out of this business. Go cut a lawn. This way the grass can grow again because once you order a window, it's ordered and it's installed. And if the contractor note was that short, those guys should have never put the window in from the beginning. Say, hey, we messed it up. We'll finish the ones that are right. We'll not do these. How hard is that? Quality control. And I told her, I said, when you hear the show and I talk about S&S, salesmen and subs, that's what this whole industry is. I said, I... In my, well, do you know for a fact
0: that's what happened here?
1: Oh yeah, I know the company. Oh okay. Yeah, I know the company. I don't know the owner, but I know one of the foreman guys that work for them, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, he said we have one crew that actually goes out. It's a handyman kind of guy that fixes all the mistakes of the main crew.
0: This handyman's <laughs> not fixing this.
1: think <laughs> no. I said, you need. A, I told him the guy, you need a window stretcher, but oh, all, oh, it, it's a very simple fix. They just got to buy two new windows for that area than the other ones, the double and the other singles above. And that
0: should be his dime, the contractor's dime.
1: Absolutely. It should be. Yeah. The salesman that did wrong. Well, now you got a problem. So I'm just kind of getting tired of seeing this bad work because it makes my job harder to sell as a contractor because if people don't know who you are and they're just trying to get estimates and trying to find out who's going to be the best pick for it, it makes it harder because now people are on the defense of having all these bad contractors take their money so if you do have any questions contact us here at the show we're going to make your life a lot easier when you're hiring the contractor to do the job that it's done right all right we'll be back after we take a quick break hey kevin here installing another Provia entry door i do about 50 or more a year schlag knobs hardware and handle sets make a great compliment to any Provia fiberglass or steel entry door Provee and Schlage, I think, are the best combination of curb appeal, style, and security money can buy in entry doors. And Schlage now has a complete line of Wi-Fi locks, including the new Encode Plus, which can be locked or unlocked with the tap of an Apple Watch. Amazing. Provee and Schlage, there's no better combination for entry doors. Okay, Ron, as we power forward with the college interview they're going to be doing, what do we have? we got
0: something very special. This is the Your Valuable Home feature series, How will Power the U.S. or America Going Forward. Fascinating preview of how we'll power this vast country going well into the future. There's some really interesting stuff going on. Again, this special series is made possible with subject experts from the U.S. Department of Energy. The feature for today is nuclear power. And join us to uh, discuss what role nuclear will play is Dr. Katie Hoff, Assistant Secretary for Nuclear Energy in the U.S. Department of Energy. At the end of the decade of the 70s, the U.S. had about 60 operating nuclear reactors. You know, we all saw them with the big cooling towers. Since then, the growth of the nuclear power industry in the U.S. and in many industrialized countries around the world has largely been stalled. But today, a lot is changing in the nuclear space, and much of that change is being driven by Dr. Huff's office in the Department of Energy. Dr. Huff, welcome to your valuable home.
2: Thanks. Great to be here.
0: Good to have you here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't nuclear the nation's largest source of carbon-free power?
2: Nuclear power provides about half of our carbon-free power. So all the other sources combined are about as much carbon-free power as nuclear provides to the U.S. grid.
0: So is the Department of Energy on a timeline to transform nuclear power to help the U.S. achieve this? I think we're shooting for net zero emissions by target date of 2050?
2: Yeah, we assess that we'll have to double or possibly triple the amount of nuclear power in the U.S. in terms of capacity by 2050 in order to meet those goals. And that is a really big goal, but there is still a pathway between now and then if we move really quickly in the coming decade, particularly in getting a number of commercial, small modular and advanced reactor designs ready for commercial deployment by making sure that they have partnerships and orders on the books for near-term deployment this decade.
0: Based on everything I read, I think you're on track to do just that. Let's get into the specific technology now. What is the small modular reactor or SMR? What is the potential in terms of power and uses?
2: Yes, there are a variety of next-generation reactor designs, and one can imagine just shrinking down the scale of our existing gigawatt-scale nuclear power plants using the same kinds of fuel and coolant, that is uranium oxide and water, and shrinking those down into more manageable sizes for modular construction. So bringing them from a gigawatt down to maybe a third of a gigawatt in the hundreds of megawatt scale, you can reduce the cost of a number of the construction timelines that you see with stick-built plants by building these reactors on more modular skids. Now, a small modular reactor could also be an advanced reactor design with more advanced fuels and coolants of a sort of generation four next generation type. And they can use the same kind of reduction in size and construction modularity to deploy those as well. Both are on the table right now, um, and we would say, you know, they're definitely both commercializing through DOE support. In terms of power and uses, you know, the potential is really to replace retiring and retired coal plants. You need something around the size of a small modular reactor. You need workers and infrastructure a lot like what you would have around an operating coal plant. In terms of uses, because nuclear power creates thermal energy as its primary energy Um, product, that thermal energy can be used for a number of uses that are not easy to decarbonize with other clean energy sources because that heat might be the direct power production that's desired. Uh,
0: I think I read something about this. SMRs are perfectly suited to providing a power source in situations where there's space constraints, too.
2: That's right. You know, because of that, you can produce a really large amount of power in a fairly small building. And small modular reactors, because of the safety case associated with both their size and the advancements of technology, since our more conventional designs were built, we're able to constrain the emergency planning zone for some of these reactor deployments down to just the fence line of the plant. And so, with the recent assessment by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, I think there's real hope to make sure that those footprints really contain the entire feasible emergency planning zone to, you know, the footprint uh, similar to a coal plant.
0: Are they effective as emergency power sources?
2: Yeah, you know, nuclear power is the most resilient power that we have in the United States. It operates at a ninety plus percent capacity factor which is to say it's sort of always on all the time um and always available unless you're shutting it down to refuel and it runs really steadily and this is the kind of thing you really want in an emergency for backup power you want that power to be firm power regardless of whether ready to go when you want to turn those lights on
0: isn't the design approval for an smr didn't that occur for the first time in 2023
2: Yeah, we're really excited. The new scale Voyager reactor design had a design certification approved by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for that reactor. And, you know, this is a really good example of how long term federal government support and commitment to the advancement of technology can result in a really commercializable technology the Department of Energy, through my offices and others, has supported the new scale technology since its birth as a university project. And now it's a big publicly traded company with a design certification for their SMR. So we're really proud of that new scale Voyager small modular reactor technology.
0: I mean, nuclear powered submarines have been out there for years now. Has some of this technology been used in that arena? Because they stayed down for a long time, right?
2: That's right. In a very real sense, the Naval Reactors Program in the United States produces a number of small modular reactors a year for our submarines and aircraft carriers. Uh, While those Reactors may have higher enrichments than commercial-grade reactors and may operate at a higher level of performance. And they have needs that you wouldn't need to operate conventional nuclear power plants the same way you need to operate a submarine reactor. They have a lot of similarities. And our expertise, of course, in the United States with our Naval Reactors program is unmatched by the planets. So we definitely have some experience and a lot of promise that these are technologies that won't be far from what's already being done.
0: It would seem that way. Yeah. Okay. So how long before our listeners across the country start benefiting from uh, power generated by SMRs?
2: Not long. Some of our first DOE supported commercial deployments have targets for connection to the grid production of commercial power by the end of the decade. We're really excited to see the UAMs carbon-free power project that will deploy the new scale Voyager six-pack is targeting the end of this decade, 2029, 2030, for commercial power. The same is true of the TerraPower and Natrium Reactor and the X-Energy XC-100s they're targeting around the, the change in decade, around 2030, for commercial operation.
0: So in terms of the total scheme of things, it's right around the corner.
2: I would say so. Yeah, we have real faith that these projects are going to keep moving on the pace that they've already started. And so far, they're, they're meeting milestones.
0: So how many homes can one SMR power?
2: Yeah, if you're thinking about a kind of standard size, 300 megawatt Gale small modular reactor, you're talking about two or three hundred thousand homes.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. And what would the size of that reactor be?
2: Yeah, so it depends a little bit on the design. Some designs, you know, envision smaller footprints, bigger footprints, but you can imagine a sort of standard. Coal plant site would be about the physical footprint, but the actual physical size of the reactor, you know, it's a few meters high and a few meters across. Most of them are much taller than they are wide, but the reactor core itself, you could probably get your arms around it, but it would be quite a bit taller than a couple of people in some cases. Some reactors are more squat and wide. Some reactors are more tall and thin. But, you know, you're talking about something that fits in a reasonably sized smaller building,
0: that's amazing, so they said so they are infinitely smaller than the big ones that you know we we live in Pennsylvania near through a three mile island was. That was a huge facility, but what we're talking about now is much, much smaller than that, right?
2: Yeah, and largely the facility around that reactor core, even in the conventional reactors, is much, much bigger because of the amount of heat that has to be extracted. A huge amount of the physical footprint of the plant is the extraction of the heat, and if the heat being generated is three times smaller, then you've already reduced the amount of piping and turbines and whatnot that you would need to turn that nuclear power being created in the reactor core into usable electricity.
0: What is the micro-reactor and its potential in terms of power and uses? A follow-up to that is what is the goal of your program called MARVEL? Is it a way of fast-tracking micro-reactor uh, development with the DOE and partners?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, Microreactors are really cool because you can take that scale down to SMRs, which is sort of a third of the size of a conventional reactor, and take it all the way down to what it would look like if you were one one hundredth or one one thousandth of the size of a conventional reactor. Now you're in this size space currently occupied by backup diesel generators or, you know, very small um, fossil deployments for remote applications. Those microreactors aren't going to make sense if you need to generate a thousand megawatts, but they are are going to make sense for applications where in a very remote location, you need resilient power at the one to five to maybe 20 megawatt scale. Those microreactors are significantly smaller. Their safety case is, of course, also the possible impacts of any kind of very small reactor is reduced by the size of the reactor. So, you know, you have a lot more flexibility in terms of footprint as well. The Marvel reactor is a way of accelerating the way that we do microreactor development, DOE is demonstrating its capability to use known technology, sterling engines, Triga reactor fuel that we've used for a long time in research reactors, and combine those sort of known existing technologies as quickly as possible into developing a microreactor for experimental demonstration out there at Idaho National Laboratory. You know, it's not for commercial operation. It's largely to show that we have all the pieces and parts to put together a functional, interesting microreactor over the course of just a couple of years. And that DOE authorization around the safety basis for that reactor is ready to go for other projects. So it's a really nice project because it it... Exercise is a muscle that DOE and many of our partners haven't used in a, in a few decades, and it demonstrates that we can still do uh, what we've previously done and that there's technology that has really improved what's possible in real speed. And in this case, the Marble Reactor is really cool little project out there in I know That particular design would easily fit in half of the office that I'm currently sitting in.
0: That's amazing. It's just absolutely amazing. You know, I know that France is almost... Uh, Totally powered, nuclear powered now. But their technologies can't be these advanced technologies, can they? Because they've had them for a while now.
2: Currently, France isn't leading with a commercially ready small modular reactor technology. But I know that the French government has expressed an openness to the deployment of small modular reactors when their commercial industry is ready. But their gigawatt scale plants, they're still really focused on building EPRs and EPR2s, those sort of more conventional sized plants that incorporate advanced passive safety. Sort of like our AP1000 from Westinghouse, right? It's a big conventional size plant, but it's incorporated a lot of advanced passive safety capabilities.
0: The MARVEL program, M A R V E L, is it really is meant to involve partners in developing is it the micro reactor technology or is it both technology? I think it's just the micro, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's a micro reactor and so in a very real sense it's The lessons are most applicable to micro-reactors, in particular those that might use heat pipe-like or sterling engine-like, thermal transfer, heat transfer, heat extraction. But broadly, you know, it's intended to sort of test and demonstrate a handful of capabilities around integrating renewable energies with small nuclear on microgrids, which is mostly applicable for nuclear And there's ultimately just an interest to make sure that there's a a musculature inside the complex capable of fairly quickly prototyping, designing, designing and prototyping and building a small reactor within the DOE complex um, and authorizing its safety. And then we can use it to demonstrate various capabilities for integration and testing.
0: I just read recently, there are really three grids in this country. There's the Eastern grid, the Western grid, and then there's one grid that belongs to Texas, Texas only. Yes. Yeah. So what role, if any, do micro-reactors and SMRs have in the modernization of these three grids?
2: Think of it this way. Our current grid has a lot of transmission and you really can't get to a climate transition without a lot more transmission being built out to reach those geographically constrained sources like solar and wind and geothermal. So there's already a lot of grid that might not be useful in that transition until you figure out how to make sure that the previous firm sources of energy that need to be decarbonized are replaced with clean versions, right? And so when we think about the like grid modernization, I think nuclear's role is to really utilize a lot of the grid that already exists by replacing in place the unabated fossil plants that are retiring or need or will retire or have already retired, if they can't be mitigated by carbon capture and sequestration, right? A number of plants may be able to mitigate their carbon emissions through carbon capture and sequestration, but many of them will need to be replaced with firm, clean power of approximately the same megawatts that that former coal plant used to produce in order to fully leverage the grid that we already have. And so nuclear power is uniquely suited to that, particularly small modular reactors, because they're around the same footprint as a coal plant. And we've demonstrated through a DOE report recently that about 85% of the retiring and retired coal plant sites would be suitable for nuclear power, particularly small modular reactors. And that it would reduce the costs of deploying those reactors by 15 to 35%. But finally, and most importantly, not just the grid infrastructure, but the human infrastructure of this transition need to be preserved. So Preserving that grid that already exists is important and preserving people and their skill sets and those skilled crafts that operate those coal plants is really essential for the transition to be just. And so in a coal plant, you have boilermakers and union electricians and welders and whatnot. And all of those same people are needed in a nuclear power plant. And making sure that that transition works for those communities is an absolutely pivotal part of the Biden plan for clean energy transition that's just. And so you save the grid, you save jobs, and you build out from the infrastructure we already have to the fullest extent we possibly can.
0: It's interesting you're bringing this up because I think a lot of that has been lost in all the communication about what you're doing. And that's the first time I really understood that saving those jobs and those coal plants is part of this whole
2: equation. Absolutely. Every person that we don't have to retrain is, you know, a whole different kind of job set that's available to others. That like you know, every single community out there that's currently surrounding a coal plant site has an opportunity in the context of nuclear that they can be considering. And as we say, about eighty five percent of them are already, we've assessed, likely suitable for nuclear power.
0: Who are some of your commercial partners for both types, the micro reactors and the SMRs?
2: You know, I would really love to see all those really hard to decarbonize customers coming towards small modular and micro reactors um, as dedicated sources of power that they might have previously looked towards fuel sources. You know, the steel industry has historically often operated coal plants on site, but nuclear power could just as easily be producing hydrogen on site that could be used in iron reduction blast furnaces. I say just as easily. It's really not as easy, but with help from TOE and others, I think there's a real opportunity. The same is true for the chemical industry, which needs heat and power. We're looking to Dow Chemical to be a leader in that space. They partnered with X Energy on that first deployment, and their intent, of course, is to leverage the nuclear power towards their chemical plant capabilities we also see real opportunities for data centers to leverage micro and small modular reactors. Data centers that support the whole internet uh, machine are massive. They have incredible power needs. Some of them are in the tens of megawatts, and they need that power every day, all day, no matter what the weather. They don't shut down at night (laughs) like a lot of office buildings do. They need power every second of every day. And Microreactors for their resilience are about right size for that sort of thing and are appropriately resilient for kind of the backup for a or dedicated direct power for a data center. We see the same opportunities there in the context of not just data centers, but chips manufacturing and other clean energy products like carbon free fuels. You know, those factories aren't running just when the sun is shining or when the wind is blowing. Those factories run all day, every day. If you have a factory that's making chips, you you know, you have three shifts and you run all day. And so you need power all day and all night. Uh, And that kind of thing may need direct, dedicated, resilient energy of the size and shape of micro or small modular reactors. So we're really hopeful that the companies that are working to build and design micro-reactors, i could list and list a number of those vendors we'll be partnering with those companies like the googles and the you know chip manufacturers but those nuclear reactor vendors are too multitudinous to list but i'll give you a few of them you know in the small modular reactor space, General Electric, through GE Hitachi, has a boiling water reactor design, the BWRX-300. The Westinghouse has a shrunken version of their AP-1000, the same reactor design that just turned on in, in Georgia. That AP-1000, they've shrunk down to a design called the AP-300 for obvious reasons. It went from a 1,000 megawatts to a 300 megawatt design. New scale, of course, we've mentioned a couple times. Holtec has a small modular reactor at the 160 megawatt scale. Um, it's a light water small modular reactor design. When you move, move into the space outside of those sort of light water reactor small modular reactors and into more uh, micro and advanced reactors, you have companies like TerraPower thinking about sodium cooled fast reactors and liquid salt reactors. You have companies like X, X Energy. Kairos, Ultrasafe Nuclear Company. All of these companies have, you know, DOE support in various ways, or DOE engagements and cooperations. Many of them are part of our Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program, and they have advanced reactor coolants and advanced fuels and some advanced power storage technologies associated with them. So there's a quite a variety. On the microreactor space, you know, Westinghouse has a reactor called Evinci. BWXT is partnering with DOE on a reactor called Banner. But there's a variety of vendors out there. So many, it's, in fact, somewhat hard to keep tracks. So I know that I've failed to list a few, but the reactor vendors with real plans for deployment are multitudinous here in the United States.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you got a lot of talent and brainpower behind this whole thing. Absolutely. How can everybody keep abreast of what, what you're doing in your office?
2: Yeah, well, so, you know, we do social media. We have a Twitter account, LinkedIn account, Facebook account, all under the sort of "Gov Nuclear Office of Nuclear Energy title. Um, I would really encourage folks to follow us on those social media platforms, but we also, of course, have a homepage, energy.gov slash NE will take you there. But you can also just Google the Office of Nuclear Energy and the first landing page you get will be our main website for the Office of Nuclear Energy. And it, it has a number of cool explainers and press releases of all the various milestones for projects that we've been supporting. Articles to update folks on everything from spent fuel, fuel enrichment, uh, research and development on uh, new reactor technologies, diversity, equity and inclusion, and other stakeholder engagement activities.
0: Well, you are doing incredibly important work. This has been fascinating, and there's a lot of hope ahead for a new
2: way to power this country. I really appreciate that. Thanks
0: for having me. Hey, Kev, great news on how our listeners can tap into their home equity without taking a loan, making monthly payments, or piling on debt. With Unison, they get up to 17.5% of their home's value to remodel, pay off debt, buy a vacation home, whatever. You have Unison, right? Yep, paid off medical debt. Unison's terms were perfect for me, especially zero monthly payments for up to 30 years.
1: Zero monthly payments. How do they make money?
0: When you sell your home, you pay them the original co-investment amount plus a percentage of the change in your home's value up to 30 years later. How do we learn more? Go to unison.com backslash YVH, which stands for Your Valuable Home. Again, that's unison.com backslash YVH. Additional terms and conditions apply. Visit unison.com backslash YVH for details.
1: Remember the name Provia, your single source for professional class, entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufacturing stone and metal roofing products made with latest technology and honest old-world craftsmanship the prevail way
0: that's this week's podcast your valuable home comes to you every week on the new pod city podcast network apple podcast and all other popular podcast
1: directories